start out expecting something much more, and some of your contemporaries achieve it. You start reading about them in the papers or seeing them on TV. That's the danger of Midtown Manhattan, running across far more successful contemporaries. I try to avoid them whenever I can, uh, but when I can't, they're always very friendly, but inevitably they ask, what am I doing, or think it. I, I find it hard to believe that, that many people from our background are successful. I mean, aren't, aren't you confusing them with people that you might have known from college who came from, from normal backgrounds? It's, it's not surprising that, that, that an energetic, self-confident achiever, free of, of, of illusions, should be successful. Um, what's up? Uh, up, um, UHB. It's an acronym for Urban Haute Bourgeoisie. It's a more sociologically precise alternative to crappy and, and other terms. Well, you're partly right. Some of the people whom I mentioned were not from up, right. up backgrounds, but uh, some of them were. You're going to have to accept that people from our background are not doomed to failure. I, I wonder if they were, were typical ups. There was, there was probably some factor which, which set, set them apart. And also, their their career is not over. I mean, the the failure could still be to come. We the old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. Hello, once again, listeners. You are back in the Hit Factory. It's Aaron here with you today. Sadly, Carly has taken up with a member of the titled aristocracy and absconded to a house in Southampton for the weekend. Uh, But fear not, I am presently broadcasting from the back of a cab uh, on my way to go and defend her honor. And I have an excellent guest alongside me today to do so. Uh, From the Kino Lefter podcast, it's Evan McDonald. Evan, thanks so much for being here today. Hi, Aaron. I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's great to have you. Thanks so much. Where can uh, where can people find you, Evan? So if people decide to hunt me down on the internet, you can find me at McDonald Tweets on Twitter, and you can follow my smash hit award-winning Canadian socialist movie podcast, Kino Lefter at Kino Lefter. Perfect. Um, yeah, you guys have been doing some uh, some great work. I guess I guess you have been. It's 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 just you on the show now with some guests. Just me. Um, but uh, I've, I've been loving your uh, your new mini series on James Bond, Gun Barrel. Yeah, yeah cool. I've been uh, doing that for about a month. Um, so we've been watching the Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig Bond films to uh, both evaluate them as pieces of art and see what they say about the times they were made in. So that is wrapping up. All of the episodes have been recorded, so they're just being released now, because Die Another Day Inspector are the last ones, as of this recording, that uh, hey, hey. that haven't been released yet, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to everyone getting a chance to hear the rest of it. Awesome. I uh, I think when I initially reached out to you, I said, you know, James Bond and I have always had something of a, a fractious relationship, but uh, I, was, I was pleased to hear that uh, you are a huge fan of of the modern bond and specifically casino Royale. I think I was also really turned on to the series initially by that one in my adolescence and, and have journeyed further into the bond universe since. So that is, that is awesome. Yeah. I've uh, casino Royale was a big movie for me when I was a younger person. And yeah, I've watched all the movies way too much this month. I think I've almost watched all of them. 
But uh, yeah, I love Daniel Craig in the role. He's a lot of fun. I love Roger Moore. It's it's a you can get a bit of everything in uh, in the Bond films, so I think that's why they uh, they're so long lasting. Awesome. Today on our show, though, we are discussing a slightly different film, though uh, just as many tuxedos. And I think that this film is, while in subject matter sometimes really alienating, also incredibly insightful into the uh, the understanding of the sort of rampant inferiority complexes and anxieties plaguing uh, the elite corners of American society. It's almost kind of like a Rosetta Stone for me. Um, and it is uh, the debut feature from Whit Stillman, Metropolitan from 1990. Uh, but before we get too deep into that, I did want to get your thoughts, Evan, as this is the first episode we have recorded since the announcement. Um, how are you feeling about Warner Brothers uh, sounding the death knell for the the movie theater. Uh, it's been a it's been tough because like I I I obviously enjoy the the theatrical experience uh, quite a bit. I enjoy sitting in a crowded movie theater um, with loud people around me. I, I'm kidding. I, I enjoy you know going to a movie theater. I think the the bigger sort of question mark over this whole thing for me hasn't been sort of the question of uh, like a way of enjoying movies being outmoded because I think that's, you know, it's always kind of been on the horizon, like the death of movie theaters. But I think more importantly, it sort of heralds for me, like the power that a select number of companies have <laughs> in like the entertainment industry, because, Absolutely. Uh, you know, a couple, you know, larger like figures in entertainment can just say, well, this is what we're doing. And then suddenly like the effects go all the way down. So I think obviously this will have a big impact on chain theaters. My worry is, of course, for like, you know, little art house cinemas, because Edmonton, the city I'm broadcasting in, has quite a number of them. And I really I really love them. And uh, obviously, if they were to go, I think that's a bad thing for film, um, because that is, you know, as a medium, that's sort of the way that most movies are to be watched. Um, I I don't want to sound too much like a Luddite um, because I obviously I enjoy streaming movies. It's probably the way I watch most films, especially during COVID. Obviously, it's not very safe to go to the movie theater. Um, right. Unfortunately, I did go to see Tenet at the theater. <laughs> I was going to ask if you if you made your way out to see Tenet. I, yeah, I went to go see it. Um, wasn't worth it, but it was fun. <laughs> I didn't care. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's concerning. I don't know, basically just like living in a hyper-capitalist society it's just kind of like well these decisions get made for you and now like an entire industry or form of entertainment is going to be forever changed but i yeah I, I think there's still a lot of unknowns but yeah it's, it's some exciting slash terrifying developments on the way for sure and i i think you're so right you know about the the sort of corporate power that is sort of uh is given to a lot of these studios it feels like they always kind of come out with the wrong lesson learned from from market trends. You know, after Avatar, uh, it was presumably that everything w should be in 3D. Uh, you know, after like Marvel kind of took off, it was that everything should be in like a, a cogent and comprehensive expanded universe format. And now it seems like maybe the the negative returns on Tenet or, or at least the returns that didn't look quite uh, like what they wanted them to has led them to believe like the entire future of of the media is is streaming exclusively. And that's not to say that, you know, I think that there's a lot of 
really great work being done exclusively for streaming services. Uh, you know, David Fincher just released Mank yesterday, and I'm excited to get to it. And, you know, Amazon Studios has a lot of great uh, more kind of like indie films and, and you know, A24 stuff shows up there. But, uh, yeah, it it just seems like Warner sort of making the decision for us and deciding like this is this is the future of movies. Uh, so, I, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how it plays out. I'm I'm really, I think, most interested to hear Denis Villeneuve say something about Dune specifically, just because he seems like kind of that same cut as as Nolan, who uh, just love the theater experience and make movies exclusively for a large screen format. So I, I, I want to hear what he has to say about it for sure. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because uh, obviously my preference to see Dune would be in like an IMAX theater. Um, but with COVID, I don't want to take that risk. And yeah, it's it's like you were saying, like people taking the wrong lessons from this. Like, And it's also a question of like short memory because like a year ago or something like Avengers Endgame came out and it's like, ah, the theater experience is still alive and well. Like, oh, like people were thinking, oh, we can just make everything like an event movie. And now it's suddenly like, ah, theaters are dead. No one wants to go to the theater. No one wants to go to the theater because they don't want to get sick. Um, So, I mean, it's it's hard to say what it's hard to forecast into the future um, because there's definitely a future where it's like, ah, all theater is dead and you can only watch movies on your laptop. Um, But I think once... I don't know. And it it is sort of that like shock doctrine thing of like moments of crisis, you know, do just breed genuinely like new realities. So part of me hopes that the theater will be able to survive and then I can, you know, go and enjoy my popcorn and watch Michael Clayton on the big screen. But uh, (laughs) we'll have to see. Uh, Michael Clayton rips so hard. God, I love that movie. But no, you're right. (laughs) Naomi Klein always has the answer to this kind of thing. It's like... uh, you finally start seeing the matrix code every time something bad happens in our society and, uh, and the capitalists immediately just start picking it apart and, and privatizing it or, or, or changing the trend. It's going to be an interesting year for, for the cinematic experience to say the least. Um, but, uh, moving now on to metropolitan, uh, I, I guess I want to just give like a quick synopsis of the film. So people know what we're dealing with here and, uh, and yeah, where we go from there is is uh, a mystery to us both. But uh, Metropolitan is basically the story of young Tom Townsend, uh, who over the course of a winter debutante season in New York winds up involving himself with a group of young socialites who refer to themselves as the Sally Fowler Rat Pack or SFRP. There's Sally herself, uh, the crass but affable Nick, the stuttering academic Charlie, the Jane Austen acolyte Audrey, the calculating and ever-proper Jane, the sexually liberated Cynthia, and the perpetually overlickered Fred. Tom, hailing from the West Side and of limited means, uh, following his mother's divorce from his wealthy father, nonetheless ingratiates himself with the SFRP through his novel ideologies, most notably an obsession with the socialist thinker Charles Fourier and a mutual acquaintance in the form of his ex-girlfriend, Serena Slocum, who has recently taken up with a baron named, and I love this name, Rick Von Sloniker, uh, much to the chagrin of some of the members of the group. Uh, The film takes place predominantly in smoke-filled townhouse apartments where the SFRP discuss class, sex, philosophy, art, occasionally play strip poker, and take mescaline. And uh, the entire story culminates in the slow disillusion of the group 
and Tom finally making a romantic play for Audrey after a tenuous but nevertheless eager affection develops over the course of the film. Um, is there anything that I missed there, Evan, do you think? I think that's uh, a very good summary. And uh, I think if it's not obvious from the synopsis, it's sort of a mixture of a modern costume drama uh, and a sort of social commentary, but also a very well-written comedy. So uh, the events of the film are, are very funny. But yeah, it is sort of all set within upper crust New Yorker apartments. Um, so yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed it. You know, I really do too. I first saw this film uh, while I was uh, an undergraduate in, in film school, and I was just so taken with it at the time. It, you know, the the hyper-stylized dialogue and, and the whimsy of it all, and, you know, like you said, this sort of uh, Jane Austen-style comedy of, of manners and feigned propriety and, you know, sort of a historical context. It, you know, it, it says at the beginning of the film that it takes place not long ago, but that not long ago could be really, I mean, any time in New York uh, prior to to the the early 90s. And uh, yeah, I was just, I was really, really taken with it. I thought that it was really smart and funny. And uh, it was one of those cool films to reference at a party. It's like, oh, you like Wes Anderson? Uh, maybe you should check out some Whit Stillman. Uh, maybe you <laughs> might like that. Yeah, on this on this latest watch, you know, I had never interrogated it or or watched it with any sort of political messaging in mind, and I am all the more intrigued by it um, after doing so. I, I think that yeah, there is there's sort of an apoliticism here at at face value, but there is a lot going on uh, in terms of the sort of normalization of the of of the elite class and and as they call it, the uh, urban hot bourgeoisie, as they say, <laughs> the term that they coin. Um, and these characters are all really sympathetic, but when you investigate a little bit of what they're talking about and the claims they're making about their their way of life and their particular uh, ideological outlook, things uh, begin to to certainly fracture and you kind of you kind of see the code a little bit as as it as it were. yeah, I, I think it um strikes the right balance between like being the sort of social commentary, but it isn't didactic to the level of like, there is, there's never a character who stands up in the middle and says, this is all wrong. We're all just like evil, wealthy people, blah, blah, blah. Like they are human beings. They're characters with like desires and lives and everything else. But it is also like, you do get the chance to both be invested in them as people and also have the sort of, at least for me, the distance from them to to laugh because their their sort of concerns in life most of them are laughable other than like you know pursuing you know romantic love or something that's a concern of a lot of people but uh this sort of like the need to like create typographies of people who are not them to blame society's ills on like the the titled aristocrats you know all these other people yeah. it, and it's it's interesting because we you get to see the story from sort of the perspective of Tom. And I think as, as a working class person, I, I feel like there's, there's, there's a level of like understanding like, Oh, this is not the kind of space I'm usually in. Um, like I feel like instantly an outsider, but he remains because there is this sort of like, you know, there, there is a charm to it as, you know, some characters in, in uh, that world would say, but 
it, I, I think it's able to both capture why it's appealing or why the people in this world uh, sort of enjoy socializing like this, being in this social group, while also having the remove to say, like, there's there's a high degree of absurdity going on. And, and you know, I, I certainly don't think that uh, that Whit Stillman is ignorant of that absurdity. It's, it's certainly there, you know, and, and I think that he is... Uh, offering a really sort of gentle, affectionate uh, evocation of of that particular uh, society as as alienating and small as it might be. Um, but also, you know, it, it is a send up. There there is some satirizing happening, and I don't know. It, it, it's not a particularly universal experience. I think uh, you know losing the object of your affection to a baron or, you know, being disinherited by your father and, and your new stepmother or anything like that. But uh, I, I don't know. Is there is there a debutante culture in Edmonton? No, uh, there there is not. Um, I it's, it's interesting because, uh, like, obviously, Alberta has it doesn't have the same sort of like economic development that produces uh, a sort of like working class akin to places with like high rates of unionization, like the way that Alberta industrialized. It was mainly agrarian. Um, And then with the beginning of the oil industry, mostly funded by American money, it created a highly concentrated group of people, both abroad and some domestically who made a lot of money from oil. Um, and a lot of people who work in the oil industry make a lot of money, um, but they are still s- sort of this working class, um, but it's very precarious work. Um, and the sort of spinoff from that uh, results in like, you know, a well-funded public service and, uh, you know, a standard of living that's a little bit higher than the rest of Canada. But I, there wouldn't there isn't this sort of like aristocratic culture um, that uh, you would expect to see. Maybe in Ontario, there's something like that. Um, the Laurentian <laughs> elites, uh, we like to say. But, yeah. uh, no, uh, it, and it, it would be a misnomer to say, like, Alberta is more, like, working class than something like Ontario. But uh, because Alberta is one of the richest, prov- the richest province in Canada. Um, but who that money goes to is mostly oil executives. Um, and, uh, you know, people have a decent standing of, standard of living here. And, you know, the, the relationship between that and uh, you know, resource extraction is obviously a, a difficult one. It, this movie was enjoyable for me because we don't see that same kind of like interest in the lives of the, the rich and famous of Alberta. It's mostly Instagram influencers, I, I have to say. Oh, OK. The, the new money. Yeah. I would say, you know, we're, we're Bay Area based here, um, you know, on the opposite coast from where a lot of this takes place. But I'm from the Midwest originally. And, and there is, I think, something akin to uh, debutante society there. I, I didn't meet anyone involved in it until I moved out here, though, because, of course, all those people now, uh, you know, have very high paying tech jobs. So they've they've kind of uh, abdicated and, and wound up uh, as part of that kind of new elite here on on the opposite coast but yeah I mean, it's such a it's such an alienating thing as i said but but it is also you know while being while it's kept at a distance there is constantly just sort of the exemplification of these like deeply human things of all of the anxieties uh, all of the aimlessness of the youth and you know the romances or the lack thereof and i think that it's very deliberate on behalf of stillman to 
narrow the aperture and focus in specifically on this particular age group uh, when it comes to the elite, because they haven't yet sort of uh, blossomed or, or burgeoned into whatever that, uh, you know, managerial class job or whatever that sort of, uh, you know, corporate entity that they will become. They, they haven't gotten there yet. Uh, and so this is still them reckoning with what they perceive as the failures of the people who raised them and and the fear of their own failures, however slight those might be in the grand scheme of things. But uh, I, I want to hear what you, your take is. There's a really, really good scene, one of my favorites, where Charlie, the sort of stuttering, uh, hyper-intellectual member of the group who is just perpetually alone, I think. You know, he, he has sort of an unrequited affection for Audrey, but um, is, is really one of the more distancing people in the group. And, and people find him sometimes a little uh, insufferable because of his ideas. But he's talking about class and he's talking about uh, downward social mobility and his fear and anxiety of their entire class being doomed. Uh, he even references the relative ease of upward social mobility in our society. I, I wanted to hear a little bit about what you took from that scene specifically. Well, it, it's fascinating um, because it, it's interesting because it's playing with the sort of mythology around uh, the United States and like opportunity and uh, places having the ability for you to earn a lot of money and then move up the social ladder. But it's interesting because, as well, I mean, now there almost is no social ladder, <laughs> or at least that's how, it, that's how it sort of feels. But it's interesting because his character believes that there's a, a coming doom for him and his class of people that um, they're going to, you know, move down the social ladder. And uh, I don't think it's necessarily this sort of fear about, like, how their money's going to be taken from them or there's going to be some sort of like communist revolution in America. Um, because there's also a scene um, that sort of mirrors it where he's talking to um, this guy in a bar who he considers like a failure who has a well-paying job and everything else. Right. So by all accounts, at least to me, the viewer of the film, I'm like, Oh, this, this notion of failure isn't necessarily an economic one. Although like they have extremely comfortable lives. They're never shown working and, uh, it's interesting because there is this obsession with class position um, being superior to others um, and having that as sort of a underpinning identity for them to move throughout their life that um, they are above sort of the riffraff um, and that's important to them. So I, I say it's more of a, a cultural sort of phenomenon, uh, this sort of concern about moving down the socioeconomic ladder but uh, I, I mean, it, it even sort of tells you in sort of the, the presentation of the film, like it is just set, which I think is a very smart decision. It is just set during these like, you know, parties. Um, so this sort of like class of people gets their meaning from not from work or what they have to do during the day or even their family relationships. It's a leisure class, right? Like they get to enjoy um, the high life potentially without having to earn it, right? Because they also talk about, you know, how their fathers started their careers and everything. And even having that understanding of like, oh, well, of course, like getting a room of people together and saying, as you know, when our fathers were starting their careers, they were at this point, that was a very alienating line for me. I was like, what, what does, what does a trucker from, you know, very <laughs> rural Canada um, have to have to do about that? But no, it was, it was a, 
it's a very interesting scene and telling sort of for these characters' perspectives. Yeah, I mean, there's almost like a a class erasure happening here. You know, it, there is uh, sort of only this comparative vantage point as it pertains to the rest of the elite class. You know, it's only sort of about how well you can sort of fail upward or how you can succeed by enjoying what you do. And there's another incredibly revealing and really pertinent moment where Nick is confronting Tom, who is still in kind of a position where he is a little bit more radical. He's sort of sociologically interested in the debutante society um, and these parties, but but is trying to keep it at a distance, doesn't really want to engage and, and finds the whole thing a little bit forbidding. And Nick tells him something like, oh, sure, you, you know, you're, you're kind of a snob and think that it's more important to go home and worry about the less fortunate than it is to party and engage with us. And he says, has it ever occurred to you that you are the less fortunate? Like you are, you know, in, in underclass from me. And, and yes, you know, he, he and his family certainly seem to be in a small apartment. Money seems tight all the time. He has to rent his tuxedo, but yeah, there's just sort of like this stripping away entirely of anything approaching a working class or, or especially, you know, a, 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 you know, working poor or anything like that, where Tom is the only person who is seen as less fortunate than anybody. And uh, yeah, and it just sort of plays on that field, right? It moves the goalposts and all of a sudden you have Tom as the lowest possible position on the socioeconomic ladder. And then you've got someone like uh, like the Baron, you know, Rick von Sloniker at the top who will never have to do anything his entire life besides uh, philander and work on his abs, you know. That's the dream, isn't it? Yeah. To have what, that fantastic haircut as well. Very strange ponytail. Uh, yeah, the Baron it's, had. it's very uh, it's very tied down. There's there's at least three elastic hair ties in it. it it's it's very well kept. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's, yeah, just sort of this complete erasure of, of class there. And another funny thing that comes up in that same scene, Nick even mentions that in terms of an economical social life, in terms of something where you can cut costs and still enjoy yourself, the debutante society is really it. And just sort of further, uh, illustrates this idea and, and a reality in our society where rich people just get a lot of free shit that they, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to the people who might need it or have a use for it. It, it reminds me of, I'm not sure if you're a Sopranos fan or not, but there's the, the episode where Christopher goes and meets with Ben Kingsley about his movie. And Ben Kingsley is at sort of this like trade show and being handed like new phones and a, and a nice watch and a new pair of sunglasses and literally just being thrown toys to play with and um yeah it's as always just one of those scenes that you kind of marvel at and and have to kind of laugh while also crying on the inside a little bit yeah it's it's really um i i thought that was very funny because like i have these moments uh watching the film where at first i'm saying wait am i supposed to take this seriously am i supposed to believe that you know dead parties are actually very economical is this the argument the movie's making but uh, of course, like the audience is on the other side of it. If you're not like one of the characters in this film who's mad that, um, you know, the the distinct charm of the bourgeoisie wasn't actually about how the bourgeoisie are great. <laughs> um, so it, it's uh, it was very funny. And it, it's just said in such a matter of fact way, like, oh, you only need two ties because there's black tie and white tie events. And 
I, I think it's good that they also um, positioned those scenes alongside ones where um, Tom is talking to his mom about, oh, I have to return the suit. Um, and sort of then he goes to, to Brooks Brothers, I think, to, to get fitted for a new suit and then buys yeah. the used tuxedo. Um, so, of course, this isn't any kind of sustainable lifestyle or economical at all. <laughs> um, but uh, to them, it is. Um, because their their sort of main pursuits in life are distant from this, or th- this is nothing to them, right? It's just how we let off steam uh, in the evening. Right. And he even has to like get an advance cash wise from his mother at one point to go and and actually shop for his tuxedo, and and still can't manage to afford uh, a nice coat either. He wears a like a raincoat with a lining the entire movie but it is warm because of that lining or so he says um how much familiarity did you have prior to this movie with uh with Fourier would you identify as a Fourierist or a, or a socialist in that form Evan uh I would not um so I I don't have uh much of a solid understanding of him I think my my general understanding is that he's some kind of utopian socialist but he also doesn't describe himself as a Marxist, which I think is a funny expression for that character. Um, Absolutely. Because, um, and I, I mean, it's sort of, I don't know, people on Twitter argue about this, but Marxism is a lens for understanding class conflict uh, in the world. So it's it's a sort of a bedrock tool to interpret class relationships. So to say that like he's not a Marxist is almost this like, defensive reaction um like and and of course like you don't have to worship every single thing that you know Karl Marx ever said he's long dead I'm sure he won't take it personally um (laughs) and and, you know you can have your preference among you know any sort of political viewpoint um but uh I I think it's interesting that this character makes it important to his identity because of course it's it's not important (laughs) almost to the movie right like he's from like a you know potentially lower middle class background but how is he enacting agrarian socialist principles <laughs> in you know the world of metropolitan right it's it's just another form of you know identity that people like to take on and it's it's interesting to say at parties right so um like even the the wealthy characters get to say like oh you know he's a radical blah 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 but like his actual like political beliefs are mostly evaporated once he starts having fun at these parties and you know gaining meaning from uh, the social connections he's building so yeah that bit was interesting too yeah and his uh you know his ideology is completely theoretical right he and an academic he never uh you know <laughs> pursues any sort of civic action on behalf of his uh socialist ideals but no that that distinction between Fourier and, and Marx is is really funny and timely, I guess, too. You know, we're, we're still sort of at the at the, uh, the sort of sundowning era of the Soviet Union when the, the film is released. But uh, yeah, Fourier is completely that he's just a, a utopian agrarian socialist. They reference a, a farm community that's sort of like a failed utopian like Fourier, Fourierian <laughs> It's hard to say mm-hmm. even uh, sort of experiment. And no, it's funny that you related to sort of like the, the the Twitter debate about how people identify, right? Like, are they like democratic socialists or are they Marxists or are they, you know, ANCAP or are they like anarcho-capitalist? Like all these different 
things. And, you know, in doing a little bit of reading, one thing that I did find that was really, really pleasant uh, to come across was that I, I, if Fourier were still alive, he might be able to finally settle the debate in terms of the taxonomy for us. He uh, he was obsessed with it during his time and I guess um, was also really invested in the idea of uh, cuckolds and cuckoldry <laughs> and and developed a, a taxonomy of over 75 different types of cucks. So <laughs> so if the right ever finds it, um, we're in trouble because they're going to get really, really technical with it and, and uh, have a lot, a lot of ammunition. Yeah, uh, newer insults are coming out uh, each and every day to specifically create a, a taxonomy of, you know, who is a cuck, who is being cucked, um, in which style they are being cucked. So uh, that's hilarious. And it also, I think, very revealing about the character and his particular beliefs at the end of the film when they are on that cab ride to the Hamptons to save Audrey uh, from from Rick and his evil uh, clutches. <laughs> Tom has a, a comment, you know, sort of an aside where he's like, oh, you know, I was I was thinking the other day and it, it just occurred to me that uh, maybe Fourier wasn't right. You know, maybe Maybe he's too utopian, and and he so instantly and immediately just sheds any notion of the idea of socialism or or a competing ideology to sort of the classic capitalist model that we have. And uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting that that he never approaches Marx. He he just goes immediately from utopian socialism not being sort of fundamentally rooted in reality and not taking into account the macro experiences of of an industrial society to just saying, oh yeah, actually we live in a society and, and society's fine the way it is, I guess. Yeah, it, it is uh, funny because this, I mean, this experience is uh, comparable to things we see today because it, it is a movie about growing up, becoming an adult, um, finding meaning in your life, um, all these important sort of moments of storytelling. Um, but uh, because he's also, you know, struggling to form his identity. And uh, if you're like 18 or 19 um, and just saying like, oh, yes, I've committed myself to the ideals of a 19th century utopian socialist. Like, OK, we'll we'll check it in five years and see if uh, that remains the case. Yeah. Um, but you know, <laughs> life is about change, obviously. And, uh, you know, our you know, preferences change over time and current events shape our perspective. So, um, I mean, it's a good thing. Uh, and it's, you know, apt social commentary that he's changing both because of his relationships to these people. And also it's a good life, you know, being wealthy and, you know, experiencing the, the joys of that pretty good, right? Obviously that's why they like doing it. So, you know, it's, it's funny that taking a, taking a walk in their shoes, uh, is just getting to party, um all the time and then uh it's funny because there there isn't like um the movie doesn't really center at any point like an argument for well there's one line that i think about and it's like about how like oh what would jane austen have to say about our times obviously because jane austen stories are about you know they're they're you know you, you get these uh you know manner comedies but also about class and position in a certain society and the United States uh, and Western society in general is obviously wealth is becoming more and more concentrated at the top. And it's more difficult for working people to eke out a, a living, um, let alone 
climb uh, social rank. So it's it's funny because obviously living in like a debt based consumer economy um, or, you know, any any sort of critique of the society that Metropolitan uh, describes is, is never said by Tom. Right. Because he doesn't really care. Like maybe he it's obviously like gauche to to go to these parties. Right. Like he doesn't want to associate with these rich people. And it's funny because the movie is humanizing in the sense that, oh, you know, the wealthy are people too, right? And they, you know, have these concerns and blah, blah, blah. And I don't think it's ever, I don't think any serious ideology would be underpinned by like, uh, it's the people at the top who are like so fundamentally evil, right? Like they've, they're, they make such bad choices and are horrible to each other. That's why they don't deserve um, this power. It's because of, you know, our economic system and, you know, how everyone else can benefit because of a different kind of economic organization. So I, I think the movie's smart not to have some kind of epic debate, um, because I feel like if this movie were made today, that's what it would have to be. Um, and, you know, some kind of, you know, progressive argument would have to win in the end. But I think this is more realistic because the movie is about human connections and growing up. So um, there's a wise choice to do that. I totally agree. Yeah. You know, I, I said at the top that this feel this film is revealing. And and when I say that, what I mean is all the conversations that happen here within the film uh, are about these concepts of class and these concepts of of elitism and and you know academic theory and and what the future of this particular uh, hot bourgeoisie society looks like and how they continue to succeed or if they're doomed. And it's just, it's a marvel to look at in the context of it, because I think you're right. Like, I, I think if this film approached any sort of relationship to an understanding of class, it would have completely fallen apart. Like, here are all of these people worrying in private about the collapse of their class prerogatives and their inevitable downward social mobility, while simultaneously part of the undertaking uh, that has been going on for decades of erasing any level of class consciousness on behalf of anyone else in the majority. Um, you know, I, I think to obviously, you know, Reagan era politics and, and, you know, the classic Thatcherism about the, there not being anything as society, only the individual and what have you. And, you know, it, it, it sort of hints at it. There is, there is a sniff, like a whiff of it there, uh, you know, of these people understanding better than the people who are probably engaging with the film, and uh, mass, but to you know, as you said, sort of open that curtain up, but but never approach a a real class conversation, or or rather than that, you know, maybe have a little bit of one, but make it so obfuscated by the really human, really relatable elements. You know, <laughs> I was watching this with my partner, and I used the phrase uh, "how the other half lives." And she pointed out and said, isn't it really fucked up that like somebody tried to convince us that half of society lives this way, <laughs> that it's actually a 50-50 split? Yeah, it's like your neighbor that you have to be jealous of or something like that, right? Or, you know, a classmate or your coworker is really living the high life. Um, <laughs> but uh, when obviously in reality, it's, you know, a very small handful of people at the top who get to earn the fruits of everybody else's labor. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's also interesting in this movie how, like, as if I'm remembering it correctly, they never talk about, you know, what their parents do, um, like to have earned them this much money. Right. It is just like a permanent, 
uh, sort of fixture of American society. And I think that's why doing it as sort of like a loose period piece, right? Of like, oh, this happened a little while ago makes a lot of sense, right? Because it is sort of this like, the sort of fixture of, you know, capitalist economies of having this sort of like understanding that in Europe, there's, uh, you know, an aristocracy um, and then obviously royals and lords and everything else. But like, there's a very rigid class society. Um, but America also has a very rigid class society. Just how it's stratified is different. Um, it's not, you know, divine rule. It's obviously capitalism. So it, it still works like this. I mean, it's obviously very influenced by Jane Austen, but it, it feels very evocative of those sorts of critiques of uh, English society and uh, uh, the characters believing that they live in something completely distinct uh, is very funny. I, I would not be surprised to to learn that Whit Stillman is uh, is a student of uh, Tocqueville and and just you know sort of this like collapsing and and truncating of society and it's uh, like you said stratification and uh, you know just this idea that oh you know democracy and and capitalism and and our society at large just uh, has a single class of people and and they all compete for resources and and yes there's accumulation but um, you know sort of leans into that idea of all wealth, including inherited wealth, being something that has been earned. Uh, and yeah, I, I did notice that they never once talk about any of the professional endeavors uh, or positions of any of the family members here. Right? You can sort of imagine that in a current era, they're all like partners at Goldman Sachs or on the board at like, you know, Booz Allen Hamilton or something, you know, selling off military contracts. Uh, and it's, or potentially they're doing some Michael Clayton stuff and uh, we have to investigate what they're doing in that regard. Yeah, they're just uh, yeah hiring people to kill Tom Wilkinson all the time here. Um, you know, looking at, at Whit Stillman as like a, as a figure too, his upbringing is interesting. He's part of kind of a, a legacy of, of Harvard alum because of course he is. Uh, his father was a classmate of Kennedy. And later went on to serve as the uh, an assistant secretary of commerce in the Kennedy administration. Nice. Um, yeah. And, and Whit Stillman had a kind of a career uh, in, in I guess, editing and, and journalism, if you want to call it that, for a little while before he became a filmmaker. And he was a, a junior editor at a conservative magazine called The American Spectator. And oh, yeah. He, <laughs> he, uh, he eventually, I guess, like distanced himself from a lot of his work there in like 2012 and and has since sort of dubbed himself strictly apolitical in terms of his his filmmaking and his approach. But uh, I, I think it's I think it's a, a delusion to think that anybody is is apolitical or, or holds no uh, sort of ideology, <laughs> especially with that upbringing and, you know, writing for the Crimson and being part of that vast legacy of of the in crowd. Yeah, and it's it's sort of, um, I don't know, a mantra, at least in Canadian political science, but there's no view from nowhere, right? So it is it is impossible uh, in any sort of political body uh, to be completely detached from it um, and, you know, have a perspective that is completely objective. And uh, I, I think it's funny that he would label his films like that because I, I don't think there's a need, right? Like, I don't think there's a need to obfuscate and say like oh I'm, I'm not trying i'm not trying to say anything about society with my social commentary <laughs> it's a bit funny and and i mean right. of course you know there might not be like a particular 
like ideological outcome he wants to happen as a result of like the things that he knows like that's possible um but at least in in sort of not necessarily diagnosing the problem but highlighting a funny outcome <laughs> of you know american society it's great yeah and uh, i mean when when you watch the movie with a discerning eye you look at a character like nick you know sort of the the really affable kind of witty guy but who who can't take anything seriously to save his life who uh, you know does drugs and has sex and it calls uh, members of their their group sluts and things like that and you're like this person to call this person anything but sort of like a a, a elite conservative uh, kind of character is is yeah I, I I think would be a lie and it's funny the yeah. ways that uh, Tom begins to sort of embody that character along the way and uh, some of his uh, victimhood but a lot of his entitlement. And, and by the end of this period of time, that's supposed to be less than two weeks. He's sort of running the show and, and Charlie is sort of following him around and playing second fiddle. And there's even that, that moment where they look up at, at uh, the Fowler apartment and, and he says something along the lines of like, uh, you know, Oh, uh, Sally has always told us that we can go upstairs uh, if the light is on. So like, let's go. And he's like, we we haven't been invited. We haven't been, you know, she didn't call us and then he's like no we're not going to wake up her parents let's just go uh which is a thing that they uh kind of rip nick for earlier on that he goes to everything whether he's invited or not just because he sort of feels like he is a part of the society and, and ingrained in it to the point where uh, he is sort of stalwart and a fixture that that needs to be there and uh, you know that along with just sort of the the renunciation of of socialism in the car and this idea of, of traveling, you know, many miles in a cab to sort of defend the honor of a woman who he fancies from from this this cad is just a, it's really it would be a tragedy in another film. But in this, it's it's played as sort of just a an emergence into a final form and uh, and into reality. He sort of comes mm -hmm. into a, a reality, as it were. Yeah. And it's I mean, obviously, it's socially created which is the important thing and it's created by you know these people who you know like even the misogyny uh of it all is is pretty stark and i was surprised to see it for like a you know very early 90s film um that was likely produced in the late 80s um to see this sort of uh interesting commentary on like how th this both like male perspective of women as like you know, needing to be pure and, you know, ready in line to date me um, and, uh, you know, everything else. And, and and there's especially this very evocative moment um, where one of them is saying, oh, don't worry. She's just at home with her, you know, blankets tucked up to her chin and all of her stuffed animals are around her, which is like a how you would imagine maybe like a child uh, <laughs> in bed. Right. So it's it's this very weird moment and of course like they're they're just like diagnosing the women around them as being like you know like sluts that's the word they use right and it's just like horrible why are they friends <laughs> with these people that was my first thought right and it's it's just very uh it, it's interesting that it's 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 used very well in this movie right like i don't think it's uh one of these things you can look back on in a film from the 90s and say like ooh, that hasn't aged very well because i think it's you know deliberately you know, talking about this group of people. It's all feigned propriety, right? It's all this sort of illusion that they have to, or feel like it's necessary to uphold. But 
No, it, uh, I do like what you're saying about sort of this infantilization of the female characters and and their sort of ideal of purity being tucked in bed and and you know reading her book and and with her stuffed animals, <laughs> you know, and and they even sort of make Audrey this the sort of romantic lead in the movie um, a very sort of whimsical, very innocent, idealistic person in in a way that. Uh, Certainly the other members of her group are not. They're all very calculated. Like Cynthia especially is like sleeping with Nick and then sleeping with Rick. And they even make a, a, a dig at Sally at one point for being an exhibitionist while they're playing strip poker where she just uh, you know wants to take her clothes off. And there's even that conversation where they sort of ask Tom to rank his romantic pursuits as if it's just sort of like an, another choice for them like uh, – like academia is or, or like her career path is where, you know, it, well, if this one falls through, who's next on your list? Like surely you have uh, a, a priority in terms of who you'll be dating and, and pursuing next. Like you, you, just this sort of, uh, yeah, this, this propriety and, and purity to it all, but also coupled with this Im- impersonal nature and, and very mm-hmm. pragmatic, but yeah, uh, it, it's very uh, like, you know, people are only seen as a means to an end uh, to some degree. And it's mirrored in that uh, bar scene. And I, I really liked it. I thought that was going to be near the end of the film. But um, it's uh, he talks about the older guy talks about how, you know, the people you party with, you imagine you'll be friends with them for the rest of your life. And then they vanish. Where did they go? Um, so it is sort of that uh, that mindset of like, this is all fleeting um, but at the same time, these people are like stepping stones to something else. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm glad you bring up the bar scene. I, I wanted to go to that one next and just talk a little bit about all of the, all the the context there, because I think that it's a really great exemplification of some of the things we've talked about already, uh, in which you know this this older gentleman who's definitely a professional and like kind of a loud tie and pinstripes, who's who's very well off and doesn't really say what he's doing. Uh, for work, but but is still very affluent. Uh, you know, he is talking about like the the sort of ideal and the the way to know that you've succeeded is is exclusively in the context of if you find joy in telling people what you do, right? And and this sort of comparative model of of that where the presumption is made that everybody else who has some level of notoriety or shows up in trade papers or on television does really love what they do, that that they are happy and that you uh, will never achieve that level of contentedness. And it just I, I, I just think about, you know, the sort of cyclical nature of all the operatives politically, yes, but also in you know, the managerial class and how these people never really definitively fail. They never lose their jobs. They never get demoted. They just sort of get shuffled around to the next thing. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because like, and even looking at it as a product of its time, like being very like careerist uh, or having this sort of like dread at the sense that like, this is the best it's ever going to get. Like thinking about a movie like American Beauty and sort of like the, like, oh, woe is me, I'm so successful, um, genre of film. Um, it's interesting in this context um, because, yeah, the idea of, like, you know, the potential of social mobility for th- these people is impossible, right? Like, they're they're stuck, and they're stuck at the top. 
uh, or at, at least in their perspective, they're like middle class wealthy people, right? Like they're they're the the average Joes of you know the wealthy because they're not you know the Queen of England, um, and they're not a Duke of something. So it's just like, well, you know, I'm I'm just an average schmuck. But, uh, you know, of course, there's still people below them, which is the important thing. And uh, it, it does sort of speak to the unending nature of this sort of class position um, where, yeah, they're not in any serious danger of uh, facing consequences for any kind of like, you know, wrongdoing, let alone like, you know, social wrongdoing. So there there is almost a. Well, there, there's a deep fear um, within these people that it's all maybe coming to an end or they'll have to like work um and uh it's it's funny yeah it just you know it just makes me recall just specifically in the in the current moment because of the american election and and the upcoming inauguration we think you know we 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 assume that there's going to be one in january fingers Um, crossed yeah but you know the, the idea of like these these sort of reptiles like a like a Robbie Mook, you know, who just like failed miserably in, in the Hillary Clinton campaign and was still someone who was tasked with running so many of these congressional elections that uh, that lost a bunch of House seats for Democrats or even like, you know, like Meg Whitman, who's going to be part of Biden's transition team, whose most recent accomplishment is completely uh, fumbling with with Quibi. You know, like all of these people, <laughs> you know, like these are the people who continue to get these high paying authoritative jobs that like drive the the mechanisms of society and, and who have their hands firmly on on the, uh, you know, the levers of power in our society. But um, it also brings me to, you know, another thing I was considering, which is I, I realized that there was a, a difference in the way that myself and like I said, my partner who was watching along with me classified Tom, that he sort of vacillates between two identifiers. He is either the exemplification of Charlie's fear of, of downward social mobility in the sense that he you know, has a wealthy father who then disassociates and disinherits him and, and he is living on very modest means, or he is the exact opposite and is a social climber because when we start the story, he is in that position already living on the West side of New York in a really tiny apartment with very little cash and a rented tux and still manages to climb that social ladder, still manages to find his way into this very elite circle. And I, I wondered what you thought about how, how to classify Tom as a protagonist. It's it's really interesting because I think that to some degree he is a social climber, but I don't think he initially starts as that. But he instantly feels the the appeal of it because it's it's better than him, you know, living at home. And one of the only like moments of like anger we see from Tom is when like his mom asks him a very polite question of when does he need to return his talks? And he's like, get off my back, Bob. So he's so it, mean to her. <laughs> yeah. Very rude. His mom, it seems like you know, it's infinitely patient, but uh, you know, he's, he's clearly, he doesn't like where he is, um, you know, and I think that's a, that's a common feeling for like young people to, you know, be dissatisfied with, you know, what you have. And instead of, uh, you know, he gets a taste of the the better life, right? And he just like, you know, he, he's hooked on it and he, he can't stop. And it instantly becomes like the 
the thing he's always doing, and it's a way that he defines himself. So I think that he both can be this reflection of sort of, you know, the fear of, of downward mobility, but even to to these characters in the in the UHB, like downward mobility is like, maybe I'm just like a lawyer or, or something. Maybe I'm like an accounts manager somewhere, right? But uh, yeah, now everyone else is playing second fiddle to him, right? He gets to, you know, pull out his like antique derringer when he's, you know, confronting, you know, a, a baron. So he's he's exciting to everyone else in this group, right? Because their lives are, you know, particularly stayed, right? It's just, you know, gossip and cocktails and everything else. So I, I think that, you know, he's he's drunk, he's drank the poison and he's liked it. So he's he's going to be on the same sort of downward spiral, I would assume, of like living this life because it doesn't come with any material benefit, right? Like he, he might build some kind of like social capital, but what do you do with that, right? Like how do you how do you escape from this sort of like, you know, how do you escape from the tiny apartment and, you know, not being able to make payments and everything else? It's it's just like, you know, he wants to, he wants to hang out with his friends, right? But I think that also comes with with the airs of like success, which is obviously very appealing. Yeah, he uh, he certainly uh, succeeds socially. But you're right. At the end of the film, he still doesn't have have the cash necessary to get the cab to Southampton. He has to rely on Charlie for that. And uh, I, I think that's a good way to to move into the ending of the film as well, and and talk a little bit about uh, something we've already touched on, which is sort of the the gender relations here, and and some of the more kind of conservative positions that it has in terms of its its relationships between the male and the female characters. And this is where I think the film kind of falls into sort of maybe its its biggest debt to to Jane Austen is in this very, very traditional sort of ending where two young men both infatuated with a, a young woman who they find pure of spirit and thoughtful and lovely. Uh, they go and like try to try to save her from whatever right just just from from being in the clutches of a of a hypersexual uh just sort of rotten to the core wealthy baron who they they know has this bad reputation of of even they even say ruining women right <laughs> like like as if as if they are like sort of his to just conquer and destroy and and they can't let that happen they have to save her and and protect her integrity yeah, I, I thought it was great, um, and it almost reminded me of uh, Eyes Wide Shut to some degree, um, especially sort of the dream visions that Tom has. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, like, obsession with female sexuality and dominance over women, because ultimately it is sort of like a power relationship. And ultimately, the outcome of it is funny, because when they finally go to this Baron's house, and his, his name is almost like a Kevin Smith character. It's it's very funny. Like, you could imagine a character with this name would show up in Mallrats. But uh, what's her name? Audrey? Um, she's just, like, sitting on the floor with a book, just sort of hanging out. Um, yeah. And, uh, like, she seems to have been unchanged by the experience, which is very important for them right that that she you know remains true and uh she talks about how she's able to like see through this sort of character and oh they buy the panties new and then scatter them around uh <laughs> right. you know the house to to put on this like show of being this like really macho you know dominating person ultimately you know it works out well for them because you know nothing has changed and they're able to 
you know, they don't have to reconcile their feelings with a woman doing something that they feel is like sexually improper. So ultimately, yeah, like they, it is a very like conservative social circle. And it's funny, like even this character's like beginning uh, and like, you know, initially showing interest in her to the the transformation of that. And I think I think it's like it has a, a degree of reality to it where, you know, he's interested in getting to know her. And the only scenes of women talking to each other, they're talking about, you know, the men in their lives and who they're interested in uh, romantically. Um, but then it becomes this need to control them um, where it's just like, oh, like you're clearly in peril of some kind. I, I need to save her and, you know, make her my own. Um, and then ultimately the, the the outcome is sort of like a, a balloon being let out um, or something like that because he just he pulls out a derringer and then it's just like, well, that's like weird. You shouldn't do that. And then they leave. So I, I think it was a, it was a funny ending that, you know, contained a lot of uh, elements that the movie had built up in a, in a commentary regard. Yeah. There is, there is a bizarreness to it, right. Where he pulls this, this fake little derringer and, and the Baron's friend whose name escapes me immediately identifies it as a toy mm-hmm. you know, and, and tells Rick, like, don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, funny that you mentioned, you know, the, all the conversations happening, uh, you know, woman to woman in this film, I, I hadn't even considered applying the Bechdel test to it or anything, but I'm, I'm sure that it would fail markedly. Yeah. Uh, and, and if I, if I remember correctly too, yeah, the first question that Tom asks Audrey after they leave Rick's, house is did anything happen <laughs> you know not like are you okay or, or any of those things but like you know reassure me and 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 definitively tell me that you uh <laughs> you didn't surrender your virtue or anything like that you know and, and maintained your your honor yeah it's as i said sort of the the thing that i think is most indebted to to jane austen and there's a really funny conversation that spans a, a considerable length of the film where they are they being tom and audrey arguing about mansfield park and audrey's a big fan um, and tom despite not having read the book has a very uh, definitive opinion on it <laughs> and one that he's he's uh, sort of uh, taken from a, a literary critic and and you know not not anything of his his own volition or, or thinking or or criticism and one of the things that he cites is the sort of absurdity of the center of the novel being about the morality of a play and about how there's a, a sort of crux of the drama being uh, situated around these people wanting to put on a play that for the time period is a bit risque and uh, the, the the person who owns the home not approving of that. And and so, you know, he he cancels the play and just thinking about the irony of, of Tom uh, sort of, you know, biting his thumb at the idea of this uh, very conservative morality and the end of the film being a an example of exactly that, right? His, his sort of marriage to uh, this sort of antiquated idea of, of virtue and, and of a, a woman's like honor and him pursuing it that way. Yeah, it's it's funny on that level, and I think it's also reflective of the way that, or or the place in life that media consumption plays uh, to a lot of people, because it isn't this sort of 
you know, engagement with art that makes you reflect on your own life or, you know, the times you live in. It's just that he needs to have the correct opinion about Mansfield Park from, you know, an art critic. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think that's that's very funny. It's I mean, I, I can imagine the the Twitter interaction of like, oh, Mansfield Park, like this is absurd, blah, blah, blah. Have you read Mansfield Park? No, I haven't, but I'm familiar with an essay that someone's written about it, right? And it's it it is sort of those you know levels of detachment um, from sort of the the object of understanding um, that I think that the rest of the movie uh, embodies that I think is a uh, is humorous and uh, it's it, he has such that line about you know he prefers to read art criticism instead of like reading a novel because he gets both the perspective of the work and the critic's perspective. And like, that's such a, that's like one of the funniest lines in this because like it's, you know, interpretation of, you know, any piece of art is infinite because it relies on, you know, a viewer to, to derive some meaning from it and uh, to imagine that he's getting some sort of, you know, authoritative perspective on Mansfield park because it's, uh, you know, written by someone he respects. It's, it's sad. It is a little bit, but I mean, it, there's a there's a reality there too, right? Like, who among us hasn't uh, been persuaded to like an album we otherwise may not have by a really good Pitchfork review or something? You know, yeah. like there is there is something to like the popularization of criticism and things being lauded critically that sort of changes the opinion of something, even if it's you know more mediocre or or something that is great that is received poorly. You know, it it, it sort of detaches any level of self-reflection and self-identification with a piece uh, from from your view of that thing. And uh, yeah, I, I just thought that that part was was really funny. It, it did remind me a little bit of, of internet debates. And I, I just, you know, while you were saying that recalled, you know, the, the brave women of Twitter coming to the defense of uh, Infinite Jest earlier this summer <laughs> <laughs> after after some people tried to uh, tried to take it down. There was a there's a long debate about that, which I have not read and don't hold any opinions on for the for the record. Oh, it's it's one of those things like uh I remember people were goofing on uh Jonathan Franzen uh for one reason or another. It's probably easy to goof on him. Yeah. Um and I was just sitting there like, well, I enjoyed reading the corrections. So I have no real thing to say in this. People just like having fun uh, you know, positioning themselves uh within this argument. And of course, to impress people at parties. But I think it's potentially less impressive uh, in the context of this movie to say, oh, you know, I read read med, read this book and I enjoyed it, right? And I thought this about it, right? It's more interesting to say, oh, you know, this critic that I know that oh, you've never heard of, he actually had this really interesting interpretation of Mansfield Park because then you have you have to take ownership over your perspective or what you think about something or you know what Austin's words made you think about. So. And right. of course, like what it says about class relationships. It uh, in relation to the the great Twitter debate about uh, you know a school teacher and a prison guard being identical because uh, a 19 year old read Foucault. I think that yeah, this is this is up there in terms of that as well. You know, just just definitively, you know, keeping something on the mantle or or dethroning it as it were as well. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. I, I really, I you know, I enjoy this movie for for all of the the things about it that yeah I, I find as I said sort of distancing and and bizarre. There, 
there is a lot of humor here. There is a lot of sort of gentleness and sympathy for its characters. I think it's well written. I think it's very cleverly conceived and directed as well. You know, the the idea of it only happening sort of in the the after party rooms and never having to walk us into the really lustrous balls and and all of these like high high end parties keeps it very intimate and and keeps the whole thing you know just chugging right along and uh yeah i i am really thankful and really indebted to you evan for taking the time to to watch the film and to to chat with me about it a little bit so thank you for that yeah of course no worries i i really enjoyed watching the movie i'd not seen it before and i was uh i was pleasantly surprised with uh with how much i liked it um so i think i'll i think i'll check out uh this creator's other works uh because i am culturally impoverished <laughs> yeah well he's got a whole trilogy in the 90s of, of films that are just like this of of uh you know wealthy young people feeling disillusioned by the the moment of their arrival so uh yeah he's, he's definitely someone we'll probably do on the show again at some point and hopefully we can have you on um at another time in the future as well really really looking forward to the conclusion of gun barrel evan thank you yeah the um the Die Another Day episode, I believe, is just about as long as Die Another Day was, um, but uh, it's less interminable than that film. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you for that. Um, so yeah, I host Kino Lefter, which is the only Edmonton-based socially socialist movie podcast. Um, yeah, we've uh, been going for probably over 100 episodes if you count the, the James Bond stuff, but the James Bond series is ending, um, and uh, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming of covering uh newly released films um so uh i'm sure we'll have to watch mank and the trial of the chicago seven and some other stuff that i've i've missed so uh yeah those episodes will be coming out and then hopefully i'll take a little holiday break and we'll be back at it again in 2021 if uh, the calendar flips over this year awesome and uh, we here are the sort of discount american knockoff of Kino Lefter at Hit Factory. You can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Um, we are on Patreon as well at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Please uh, subscribe there if you are not already. And uh, we're going to keep doing this for as long as we can and as long as there are uh, movies in the 90s yet to cover. And there are many. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so we'll keep bringing them to you. Uh, Evan McDonald, thank you so much again for being here. Really, really appreciate the discussion. It's my pleasure. We be old school. Yeah, old school. We be old school. Yeah, old school. Been getting that money for a girl sweet as honey. Got me some roses and a little bling. I knocked on her door, she said, what you wait for? I heard you was looking for a king. Been climbing the pyramid, her steps made of green. 